into Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, I'm looking at the part of the chapter that we read together. Remember last week we left Daniel, as it were, having received of God an answer to his prayer for the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and its interpretation. We left him having gone to Ariok, whom Nebuchadnezzar had asked to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel is brought in by Ariok before the king. And as he's brought in before the king, he then reveals to the king, as we know, both the dream and its interpretation. Now remember we called the chapter as a whole Pagan Insight versus Divine Wisdom. If we continue to keep that title, remember we saw last week how that insight was pitched against this prayer meeting that had taken place. And under the same title we'll look at this part of the chapter with the subtitle that we take from one of these verses in verse 28 there is a God in heaven because as we'll see everything that Daniel has to say can really be subsumed under that particular verse there is a God in heaven that reveals secrets this is really the essence, the thrust of Daniel's message to Nebuchadnezzar where his own experts had failed here was Daniel in conviction saying this is the God that reveals secrets, the God who is in heaven. And it divides itself up into three parts. There is, first of all, Daniel's introductory words to the king, which we'll call the God behind the dream. And then from verse 31 onwards, there's Daniel's uh, both the dream and the interpretation are brought out by Daniel, so we'll call that the God within the dream. Because as we'll see, it's all about the kingdom of God and the setting up by God of these other kingdoms also. The God behind the dream, the God within the dream. And then finally, and just in closing, we'll look at how Daniel is promoted by a king who has now prostrated himself before him. And we'll call that the God who is to be honoured and who honours. The God, first of all, behind the dream. Now it's interesting that Daniel doesn't blot out, as it were, the dream and all its details and its interpretation. He wants to gain the king's mind and the king's attention. And he does that by way of setting out the reason why these experts, so-called in Babylon, were not actually able to bring the dream or its interpretation before the king. And Daniel is quite convinced that there is one reason primarily why that is so. And what Daniel does is draw the king's mind to what we know to be the whole matter of revelation. There is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. He says in verse 27, the secret which the king demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers, 
they cannot show it to the king and they cannot show it to the king because it's a matter of disclosure from the God who is in heaven and the astrologers, the experts of Babylon do not have access to that information because it's a matter of God revealing it not of men discovering it it is a matter of the God of heaven who reveals secrets disclosing the whole essence of the thing to those that he chooses. The wise men of Babylon cannot gain that information. The gods of Babylon don't have the facility of revelation within themselves. Everything that you have concerning the wise men of Babylon, their declaration, it really comes down to this, they're groping in the dark. It is speculation, not revelation. So you see, pagan insight versus divine wisdom really narrows itself or boils down to this. That it's a matter between speculation on the one hand and revelation on the other. Something that is groping in the dark on one hand and something that lives in the light that God has given on the other hand. There is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. The key to every event is in the hand of God. The key to every single matter that happens individually or in empires and governments as we'll see, it's in the hand of God. But you see the glory of what Daniel brings before Nebuchadnezzar and us is that God has not kept it all to himself. There is a God in heaven who alone knows of these secrets, who alone has the capacity to actually interpret these secrets, to bring out the meaning of all events. But the glory of it is he has not kept it all to himself. He is the God who reveals secrets. Undoubtedly we do not know all that there is to know about God, all that there is to know about his purposes, all that there is to know even about ourselves and what takes place around us, we see but in a fragmented way. And even then God has not given us all that there is to know about himself. But the glory that we should actually dwell upon is that he is the God who reveals secrets, who has given us revelation, who has given us information that is certain, that is sure, that is unquestioned. We are not left to speculate. We are not left to, to be under the regime of Babylon or the worldly wisdom of men. It is not speculation, it is revelation that Daniel wishes to bring before the king. I want to dwell on this point for a, little, for a little more time because it's something which we have to take into the New Testament or take the New Testament light if you like and shine that upon this. Because you remember that in the New Testament there is such a thing as Paul especially calls the mystery of the gospel. You remember that that word mystery is often used by him but it's used by the Lord himself also because you remember he says to the disciples at the point when he begins to preach in parables 
unto you, he says, it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to those that are without, everything is in parables. The parables are not actually designed in the Lord's usage of them to make the matter easy for those who are without the kingdom, for those who are outside of the kingdom. The parables are actually the revealed secrets of the kingdom to the disciples. But to those that are without, they remain paradoxic, they remain enigmas, they remain things which they do not see the inner meaning of. There is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. It's revealed to disciples. But then you see, Paul, as you remember, also speaks in this way when he's writing, for example, to the Corinthians. You remember what he says in 1 Corinthians and chapter 2, where he's dealing about with this wisdom that the Greeks made so much of. But he says, we actually speak wisdom, yet not the wisdom of this world, not of the princes of this world that come to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. Now you see, we often use that verse, verse 9, I hath not seen nor ear heard, and so on, to refer to heaven, usually. Where we actually use it in a way that speaks of the mysteries of heaven as something which we cannot comprehend which still remain a mystery to us. I'm not saying there's anything wrong in that sentiment, but that's not how Paul uses these words. What Paul is saying is, here is a secret that was hidden in God, that was largely undisclosed until the coming of Christ, until the advent of the Son of God into the world, this whole matter of the gospel and of the essence of the gospel in Christ is largely hidden with God. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, the things which God has, has prepared for them that love him, but God has revealed them unto us. He is the God who reveals secrets. It is no longer hidden in himself. It is disclosed and disclosed preeminently in Christ. You find the same thing in Ephesians where he's speaking there of the mystery of God's will. In the opening chapter in verse 9, where God has abounded to us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, notice every word is full of meaning, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ. That is the mystery of his will which he has made known to us. And in the same 
epistle in chapter 3 he speaks of him being made a minister of the mystery of this grace he says the mystery that was not made known to the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy prophets and apostles by the spirit that the gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in christ by the gospel unto me who am least than the less less than the least of all saints is this grace given that i should preach among the gentiles the unsearchable riches of christ and to make all men see what is the fellowship of this mystery which from the beginning of the world has been hidden god who created all things by jesus christ and so on and finally in colossians and chapter 1 verse 25 he has the same thing in mind he speaks of him being made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God even the mystery which has been hid from from generations and ages but now is made manifest to his saints to whom God would make known what is the riches of this glory of the mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you the hope of glory and when Daniel says there is a God in heaven that reveals secrets and when we bring that with us into the New Testament to all that it has to say regarding this mystery you can see the indication that that gives us that it's not something that we don't know but that it's a glorious thing that we do know and that we do know especially in Christ the mystery of the gospel as Paul puts it is not something that God has kept to himself but that God has revealed in the person of Christ especially and that we have embodied also in the word of God yes I know that you may be dazzled that you may very well be frightened that you may very well find it plausible to look at the dazzling oratory and intellect and ability of Babylon or of Greek sophistry of the wisdom that is worldly wisdom you may marvel at the intellect you may marvel at the oratory of all that worldly wisdom has to offer you may marvel at the way that worldly wisdom will castigate the people of God and this gospel but Paul is convinced of one thing that he is not to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ because remember this is the crux of the matter that the preaching of the gospel is foolishness to them that perish that it is to them who perish as Paul puts it that the preaching of the gospel is foolishness but unto us who are saved he says it is the power of God because it is firmly of the substance of the gospel that Christ is the wisdom of God and the power of God this mystery of the gospel that which God the God of heaven has revealed as a now revealed secret that crux of the matter that comes down to this 
our relation to that Christ. How we view him is how we view his gospel. How we view him is how we view the revelation that God has given to us. And to those who are lost it is foolishness. You may indeed be terrified, persuaded in fact, by the plausibility of the world's arguments. Don't be taken in by any of that. Because remember God has said that he has chosen the base things of the world to confound the wise and the things that are weak to confound the mighty. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. But now you see that has made a great difference to Nebuchadnezzar hasn't it? Because he is no longer in the situation of one that has to deal with speculation. He's no longer in the situation of one that has to grope in the dark. He's no longer in a situation where he has to rely on his own expert so-called. He has been given the truth. And the fact that he's been given the truth leaves him without a shred of excuse. If he doesn't respond to that truth, truth and if he doesn't respect that truth. How much more is it the case for you and for me? How much more is it the case for you and I? More than it was for Nebuchadnezzar or the saints of the Old Testament. Because you have the blaze of the sunlight of Christ. You have the blaze of revelation. Not only in Christ's coming. But in Christ's accomplishing of redemption. You look back don't you. And you see that Christ has done all. That is necessary for the salvation of your soul. You have the blaze. The daylight of that revelation. Woe to you. If you perish. With that advantage. Woe to you if you do not actually obey this gospel of Christ, this mystery of God as it has been revealed in Christ. There is but woe to them who would see it as something that is not fully to be lived by. There is woe to those who would actually have that advantage and that privilege and despise it. It shall be more tolerable. For Sodom and Gomorrah and the day of judgment than for you. It shall be more tolerable for those that God destroyed from of the face of the earth than for those who have the gospel, for those who have the revealed secrets that you have in Christ, for those who have this Bible that you have in your hands, that you have freely available for you. And what else can it be but woe to those who perish and who have had all that advantage? Remember that familiarity is not the principle of a true understanding of the Word of God. Familiarity with it is not the principle of its true and abiding understanding. But reverence is. Because we're dealing with God's Word, with God's revealed secret. You cannot listen to it as you listen to any other word. You cannot read it as you read, it, as you read any other word. You listen to it with the respect that is due because it is God that is speaking. Don't actually refuse anything that it offers you. Don't suppose that any matter it has to tell you 
is anything other than sure and certain as Daniel said of this revelation that he received. The thing is certain. The thing is sure. Make sure that that is your response to the word. Make sure that you are actually using it as you ought to use it. Make sure that it's something that's so central in your life that you must say you would die without it. Yes, it's the unsearchable riches of Christ. That means we can never actually know them in the fullness of their treasure. In the fullness of his worth. They are unsearchable riches. But don't let them be in your case. Unsearched riches. Don't let the Bible be for you. As it is for so many. Something that is only meaningful. Now and again. There is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And the fact that he has revealed this secret to us in such a way. Not only does it leave us without excuse. But it makes it a much, much more solemn and responsible thing. To hear the gospel. It is in relation to that privilege. That your judgment and mine. Will ultimately be. And Daniel then says. There is this God who reveals secrets. But as for me. He says. This secret is not revealed to me. For any wisdom that I have more than any living. But so that the interpretation might be made known to the king. Let's not imagine that we're actually advancing the gospel by thinking great things about ourselves. By attributing to any man, to any preacher, to any individual the place that belongs to God. It is the God in heaven who reveals secrets that Daniel is concerned to bring before Nebuchadnezzar. Not Daniel's own mind. Not Daniel's ability. Let's remember that ability must always have a handmaid. And the handmaid of ability is always humility. Whatever gifts we have, let's remember their gifts. They're not gained, they're granted. They are freely bestowed by the grace of God. We have nothing to boast of of ourselves. Let us boast in the Lord. Well, there then is the God behind the dream. The reason why the wise men of Babylon couldn't find it out. It's a matter of revelation. A revelation that leaves you and I now. Both without excuse and in a serious and solemn position as those who hear the gospel. But then we find that Daniel goes on to explain both the dream and its meaning. And he explains it in a way that shows that God is within the dream also. That it's all about this God. And he tells Nebuchadnezzar that it consisted of an image. Now we don't need to read through these verses again. You know the picture that was given. A great image composed of different materials. Gold, silver, brass, and then iron and clay for the fourth part. And we take it that these actually indicate the different empires that would be from Daniel's time down to the coming of Christ. We know that the Babylonian Empire 
is represented by the head, the golden head, as Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar. And it seems if we follow on from that, that the rest of this figure is made up consecutively of the Persian Empire and then the Grecian or the Alexandrian Empire following on and then finally the Roman Empire which dissolves into different parts and however much as they did try to bring them together the clay would not mix with the iron and it dissipated and was conquered and fell like every other empire before them. But you notice all of these empires together compose the one figure. It's not the case that the kingdom of Christ comes in the time of Nebuchadnezzar. It's not the, t the case that he comes during the Persian Empire. He comes during the Roman Empire, during the fourth part of this figure. But the fact is that the whole figure is joined together. It's the one government. It's the one figure. It's the one monster but seen in different empires, in different actual governments, as we mentioned before. It is the principle of worldliness, the principle of anti-God government, wherever you find it in whatever age. Every single age has its own representative, and it all comes together to form this massive monster. But it's a massive monster that is demolished by one kingdom, by the kingdom of God, the kingdom that he sets up in Christ. And when we're saying that it's one monster, one figure, you notice he tells us in verse 31 that the form of this figure was terrible. It was a fearsome looking thing. It was a thing that was frightening. A thing that caused Nebuchadnezzar himself to tremble, you remember. He couldn't remember the dream, but he was actually trembling in consequence of it. This is the monster that is all out to seek to devour the Christian. To seek to actually gobble up, as it were, all that is to do with faithfulness to God. This is the monster that goes about in every age, seeking to eradicate the vestiges of godliness. This is the figure that is terrible in its own intentions, that is terrible in its policies, that is all out to get you and to actually remove from your mind and from your heart all trace of allegiance to God. The form of it was terrible. And indeed, even for the people of God it would be an awesome thing but for one crucial fact. The monster is not in control of its own destiny or the destiny of the people of God. It is the God of the dream who stands above the monster. It is the God of the dream who sets up kingdoms and pulls them down. And he does it for his own glory and he does it for the good of his people, for the good of his church, for the establishing of his name in his people. It's no different whether we think of it embodied in Nebuchadnezzar or in Caesar or in any other individual or empire. We put them all together to make the one monster and it's still the case. God is in charge. That God is actually in control. And yet, we marvel and should tremble indeed at the audacity of men. At the readiness of men to oppose God. 
to oppose God's way to set themselves up as God. Just take that example of the bill that is to be debated in Parliament tomorrow. The bill that has to do with the sanctity of life. There are many reasons why we must oppose that bill. Many, many things that we have against it. But there is one thing I feel that is at the center of it all. One thing which doesn't commonly come out in the literature, but one thing from which all other things concerning it, concerning the strategy of evil, actually issue. And it is this, that man wants to be lord of his own destiny. That unbelieving man wants to determine who has the right to live and who doesn't. That unbelieving man wants to actually have a say. And a say that amounts to lordship over his own destiny and the destiny of his fellow humans. The monster still lives. And he lives in a way that still devours. Even in the devouring of the unborn. And the fact that God is in control is not something that makes us opt out of opposition to it. We have to oppose it in every way that is legitimately possible. That's why we advocate it. We write to our MPs and so on. And you're still not too late to do that if you haven't done so. But we mustn't actually see in opposing it any other basis of our opposition but under the sovereignty of God. Yes, we oppose the might of the monster. We oppose it in every detail that we can. But we oppose it convinced of one thing. That ours is the victory in Christ. That God's kingdom is a kingdom that may be frustrated but that will not be defeated. And it comes through in this very passage. The stone that is cut without hands. Showing the supernatural origin of this kingdom that remains. The coming of Christ. The person of Christ. All that God does in Christ. In reconciling the world to himself. The very vision of it as we have it there shows that it is not of human devising, that it is not of human discovery. It is all of God. And when he sets it up as he has, it is so that this very little stone which smashes the feet of the monster actually sets itself up in its place, you notice, and becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth. The kingdom that is an everlasting kingdom, the kingdom of God, what God has done and is doing in Christ. Let's not imagine that it's Christ himself, it's Christ and his people, it's Christ and his church, it's Christ and his people that come to fill the whole earth. Are we convinced of that? Are we defeatist in our attitude, in a way that sees well, the stone is so small. How can we possibly smash this monster? How can we actually ever make any inroads against the machinations of this monstrous regimen that we find under the whole government of worldliness and evil? Well, it's the principle of the mustard seed, isn't it? It's the tiniest of all seeds. But it becomes a great tree, so that the birds of, it, of the air are able to shelter its branches. 
kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed, said Christ. You put it in the earth and you hardly notice it. Almost microscopic. But be assured of this. It will reach its full zenith. It will reach its full growth. It will actually come to its full formation. And it will come to its full formation in the place of the monster of worldliness. It will come to its full formation and fruition in the casting out of this worldliness, whether it is in its damnation or in its conversion. The end is the same. God is king and his kingdom lasts through ages all. may appear to us as somewhat as an impossibility that this great monster should be actually defeated and defeated in such a conclusive way because you notice that the stone actually smote the monster this figure and ground it to powder it became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor which the wind takes away and scatters over the face of the field it was ground that small although it was previously so frightening in its intensity and in its in its power in all that it was as it stood in that vision. It was ground to powder. And Isaiah in chapter 14 has a very graphic vision of the destruction of the king of Babylon. Isaiah sees forward to the time when the oppressor of God's people that he sees embodied in the king of Babylon will be brought to destruction. This is what he says. Thou shalt take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, How hath the oppressor ceased, the golden city ceased? The Lord hath broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of the rulers. Then he says, Hell from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. It stirreth up the dead for thee, even all the chief ones of the earth. And all they shall speak and say unto thee, Art thou also become weak as we? Art thou also become like unto us? Thy pomp is brought down to the grave. The worm is spread under thee and the worms cover thee. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Now that doesn't actually indicate the fall of Satan initially from heaven. We hear of it used in that respect. It doesn't mean Satan's actual fall from heaven when he fell. But it does mean the fall of Satan's kingdom. Even whether it is embodied in the king of Babylon or else, wherever else it is. The primary reference in Isaiah 14 is to the king of Babylon. But as we said he stands as the representative of this monster of worldliness. How art thou fallen, he says. How art thou cut to the ground who did weaken the nations. For thou didst say in your heart I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also in the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. And they that seek thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee saying, Is this the man? that made the earth to tremble, that did shake the kingdoms. 
we may find the millstones of God's government to grind exceedingly slowly. But we are persuaded of this. They grind exceedingly small. The monster is to be ground into powder. Whether you and I think of it now in those terms or not, this is what Daniel says. The dream is certain. And the interpretation of it is sure. Babylon will be brought to be ground into dust. Yet we must oppose it with all our might. The God within the dream is the God who is the true king. And we haven't time really to go into our third point, the God to be honoured and the God who honours in Daniel's own honouring by Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel is promoted, not despite his godliness, but through his godliness. We mustn't imagine that godliness or faithfulness to God is a necessary barrier against promotion even in the government of such a place as Babylon. He sat in the king's gate. He was over the affairs of Babylon as Joseph before him. He is set up into the highest position. And indeed it appears on the face of it that Nebuchadnezzar himself is converted if we may so put it. But sadly the following chapters show that it was not a lasting impression. He made this confession. In the next chapter he's ordering idolatry. Beware of partial reformation. Beware of a godliness that has just formed and denies the power. Beware of setting out on the Christian path and then giving up. Beware of coming to church to please others. Beware of anything short of a full heart godliness. The king of Babylon makes this confession. It contains the truth. Of a truth, he says, your God is a God of gods and a Lord of lords and a revealer of secrets. And Daniel is promoted Nebuchadnezzar goes back to his idolatry. But the message of the chapter is loud and clear. Pagan insight versus divine wisdom. You have them both today set out for yourself before you. You have access to both of them. It is up to yourself which one you want to choose and you want to choose to live under because you can only live under one or the other. And the message of the chapter is undoubtedly clear. Pagan insight deals with speculation. Deals with the lordship of man as man would see himself. Is that what you want to be governed by? Or is it the divine insight that you have in the gospel? The mystery that God has revealed to us. The message is. God let the earth be glad and let his people be faithful. Bless to us thy word of truth. 
We ask of thee, O Lord, that thou would make us thankful, that thou would make us submissive to every precept of thy word. We seek that thou would continue to apply it to our hearts and lives, both this day and each day we live, that we may find it more and more to profoundly influence our whole outlook, and that we may constantly give thee praise for that which thou hast revealed in the word that was made flesh and dwelt among us, that we all also might say, we beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We pray that thou would bless to us this portion of it now to our soul. Take us out this evening, we pray thee, with a renewed desire to worship thee and to hear thy voice, to be under that government that opposes everything that is to do with evil and to the government of Satan, that we may find it our chiefest joy to set Jerusalem and its welfare before our minds. Hear us for thy glory's sake. Amen.